All right, 2 Kings chapter 6, 2 Kings chapter 6. In 1989, Nike ran an advertising campaign for cross-training shoes based on the two-sport athlete Bo Jackson. And if you are old enough to remember it, it was Bo Nose, right? And it was basically Bo Jackson was portrayed as the guy who could do it all. Bo Nose tennis, and then you know, he'd beat John McEnroe. You know, Bo Nose ice skating, and he'd beat Scott Hamilton or something. You know, he knew how to do everything. But there's only one person who knows how to do everything. And this is the lesson that King Jehoram of Israel refuses to learn. And so because of that, the king has this up and down relationship with Elijah. Sometimes he's listening to him, sometimes he's ordering his execution. And so if we're going to avoid becoming like Jehoram, we must accept that God knows what he's talking about way better than us. So chapter 6, we're going to pick it up in verse 24. It says, and it came to pass after this that Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, gathered all his host and went up and besieged Samaria. And there was a great famine in Samaria, and behold, they besieged it until a donkey's head was sold for 80 pieces of silver and the fourth part of a cab of dove's dung for five pieces of silver. When it starts off, it says, it came to pass after this, this goes immediately back to the previous verses, particularly verse 23, after Jehoram, the king, returned the raiding party that was sent to kidnap Elijah. Remember, Elijah asked the Lord to blind them. He blinded them. He led them right into the middle of Samaria. They were completely trapped. And then the king came out and said, shall I slay him? Shall I slay him? He's ready to kill them all. And, and he says, no, you're going to feed him, and then you're going to send them back to Ben-Hadad, their king. And so he does that, and then When this happens, it says that Ben-Hadad says, I'm not messing with raiding parties anymore. We're just going to lay siege to the city. It brings his whole army. Now, I will confess, most commentators think this occurs years later, but there's no reason to think that this is not Ben-Hadad's immediate response. And it, it seems to be in character with what we see later on here. There's no more ambush attempts, no more kidnapping attempts. I'm just going to overwhelm the nation of Israel. What's interesting is Ben-Hadad tried this tactic about 20 years prior, and that ended badly because the Lord fought for Israel and led Ahab to victory. That's Jehoram's father. Well, Ben-Hadad never learned the lesson from his failures, that you never leave out the God factor when you make your choices. But he does it again. And at first, the siege seems a success. Verse 25 tells us that the famine, the widespread shortage of food was so bad, and it says a donkey's head was sold for 80 pieces of silver. Now, that's the goal. The goal of a siege is just around the city to prevent any supplies from getting in. And eventually, the supplies that are in the city run out, and the population is starving, and it's starved, you know, basically it's so bad they surrender um, without fighting. And so, it says, though, that they, they didn't surrender, and things got so bad that a donkey's head was about, about two pounds of silver. Now, the donkey is an unclean animal. It's not supposed to be eaten by Israelis. In addition, uh, I know some of you may like some interesting things like cow's tongue and other stuff, but generally speaking, the head of the animal was the least edible part. And given Israel's descent into idolatry, though, it shouldn't surprise us that they're eating animals they shouldn't. But for the least edible part to be so expensive shows how bad things have gotten. It tells us that a cab of dove's dung, which means a half a pint of dove dung, cost, uh, it says here, five pieces of silver. Now, dove's dung was not being eaten. They would use that for fuel to heat or, or, you know, to room, to heat the room or to cook their food. But 
animal dung was only used when it was your only option left. I remember I was reading Isaiah as a younger believer, and, and I think it's Isaiah. It might be Ezekiel, but it's one of the two, either Isaiah or Ezekiel. And, and the Lord says, you know, I want you, I think it's Ezekiel, I want you to cook your, he says, I want you to uh, eat your food with cow dung. And uh, <laughs> at that point in time, you know, Ezekiel's like, oh, Lord, please, anything but that. You know, and you read that, and I'm like, ew, he wants him to eat cow dung? But the idea is to cook it with it, the, the bake the food, and it, obviously the smell would get in there and stuff. But he's not asking him to eat the dung, and they wouldn't do this either. This is the fuel you, they'd use as a last resort. So in other words, things are bad. But sadly, this is not the worst of it. Look at verse 26. And as the king of Israel was passing by upon the wall, there cried a woman unto him, saying, Help, my lord, O king. And he, the king, said, If the Lord do not help you, when shall I help you? Out of the barn floor or out of the wine press? <laughs> this woman says, Help, which means you must rescue me. You need to give me rescue. And, and the king is so frustrated. He, he says, From where? From where? If the Lord, who has all the resources of the universe at his disposal, if he hasn't answered your demand for rescue, where am I going to find the resources? You want to check the barn floor? It's empty. It's all empty. Jehoram's initial response is bitter. Bitter at God, bitter at the people who keep creating problems for him. But this bitterness clouds his judgment. First off, he incorrectly assumes what her problem is. He, oh, this is just another starving citizen acting as if she's the only one in that predicament. But we're going to see in a moment that while she does need food, she's not pleading with him for food, she's pleading with him for justice. At the root of all bitterness is some kind of pride that says, well, I deserve better, or the more insidious part of it, which is, I don't deserve it to be this bad, right? A lot of us might go, I deserve better, but we might go, I don't deserve it to be this bad, but it's the same. It's when we get the idea that, God, you're not being fair with me. And, and when I have that mindset that life isn't fair and, 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 and God's not fair and people aren't fair with me, it causes me to make incorrect assumptions about what's going on around me, especially when it comes to other people's motives or other people's needs. The truth is, you and I know way less than we think we do. It's a good thing to remember. The second thing that bitterness does to cloud his judgment is he incorrectly assumes that God has failed. And in, in his mind, the king is thinking again. He's failed me again. This is the same guy who cried out, oh, God brought our army into the desert to kill us when they couldn't find any water. This was always Jehoram's go-to when things got bad. God's not good. God's at fault. God's against me. You see, bitterness has a tendency to cause us to only remember the obstacles and the onset of our trials. It forgets how God came through for us in the end, because the truth is, if you're still presently here, then God came through for you in some way, shape, or form. This results in a jaded view of those difficulties, creating anger, not just because it was hard, but because God would even let us go through the difficulty rather than be thankfully brought us to the other side of the difficulty. Well, Jehoram must have realized his rudeness because he asked for more details when she doesn't respond. Look at verse 28. And the king said unto her, what ails you? And she answered, well, this woman said unto me, give your son that we may eat him today, and we will eat my son tomorrow. And so we boiled my son and did eat him. And I said unto her on the next day, we'll give your son, and we may eat him. And she has hid her son. Now, 
her complaint here, her appeal to him is disturbing on every level, every level. That the people would feel driven to cannibalism to survive, I mean, that in and of itself shows you that things are bad. That she admits to murdering and eating her child as if that doesn't incriminate her, like she's got a case, that's also horrifying. And then that she asks for justice because of a violated spoken contract to kill and eat another woman's child. This whole thing is disturbing. But this is the type of logic that invades a people who are suffering because they've rejected the Lord. It's, this is the type of logic that invades a people who are suffering because they've rejected the Lord. Our nation, many nations in society today are having so many problems. When we look at our nation, we see hatred, we see violence, we see division, confusion, immorality, pride, and deception. And when we look at society's proposed solutions to these problems, they're baffling to me. And and maybe you've even thought, how could a person think that way, think this is the answer? The answer to your question is that when a people reject the Lord and the Lord's ways, we end up devaluing life, even to the lives of our own children. Now, this is such a horrifying incident in Israel's history that rabbis today deny this event happened. They'll say this was some like allegorized story or uh, this didn't really happen this way, that she was exaggerating. Uh, They would say that eating means something else. I'm not sure what they mean by that. But they deny it because they say, well, no Israeli would ever dare do such an awful thing even in a famine. But what's interesting is that God predicted it would happen in Israel when Israel turned away from him. Look at Deuteronomy 28 with me. Deuteronomy 28. In Deuteronomy 28, verse 49, this is part of a section of Scripture where the Lord's saying, and if you keep persisting in rebelling against me, I'm going to allow this to happen. In verse 49, the Lord says that He will bring a nation against you from far off. If you refuse to repent from the previous things I've done to get your attention, I'll bring a nation against you from far, from the end of the earth, as swift as the eagle flies, a nation whose tongue you don't understand. And they're going to invade you, and they're going to lay siege to your cities. Look at verse 52. And he shall besiege you in all your gates until your high and fenced walls come down, wherein you trusted. Instead of trusting in me, you trusted in your walled cities. Well, he's going to lay siege to you until those walls come down throughout all your land. And he shall besiege you in all your gates throughout all your land, which the Lord God has given you. And you shall eat the fruit of your own body, the flesh of your sons and your daughters, which the Lord your God has given you in the siege and in the straightness. In other words, the desperate straits wherewith your enemies shall distress you. God predicted you're going to come to a point where I'm disciplining you, I'm judging you, but you'll be so stubborn in your rebellion to me, instead of repent and cry out to me, you'll eat your own kids. That's what the Lord says will happen. So I, I really, it doesn't matter to me what the rabbis say, what the Scriptures say is that, is that they did this. Now, God didn't do this to them. Sometimes I'll hear Christians say, why did God do this? God did not do this to them. In fact, in Deuteronomy, God's explaining, this is what you'll do instead of repent when I judge you. And it's because you'll persist in your rebellion against me. You say, well, why would God allow a situation like that into their lives? It's very simple, to get their attention. I had a roommate at Bible college, and he told me a story of how his mother got saved. 
he said, he was, he was telling me that, well, she had given birth to him, and, and, uh, and she only had enough money to either buy him milk or to get her cigarettes. And when she came home from the store with the cigarettes, it broke her. When she realized what she had done, it absolutely broke her. She realized how selfish she was, how lost she was, how her values were so out of whack, and she, she started going to church, she repented, and got saved. And that's what these judgments were supposed to do. Wake God's people up. When you're looking around, there's no food. Instead of going, well, let's eat our kids, he, he, he says, how about we cry out to God and repent? It was to wake God's people up, but these two women persisted in their rebellion against God, and they did something awful. Well, instead of hearing her complaint and him repenting or calling her to repentance, the king blames the Lord. Look at verse 30, 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 30. And it came to pass when the king heard the words of the woman that he rent his clothes, and he passed by upon the wall, and the people looked, and behold, he had sackcloth within upon his flesh. And then he said, God, do so, and more also to me, if the head of Elijah, the son of Shaphat, shall stand on him this day. Jehoram tears his clothes, uh, tearing your clothes, and these would be his robes, his royal robes he'd be wearing. Tearing them into two pieces would be a sign of mourning normally, but it also, also can be a sign of anger, and that's likely what the case is here. But the tearing of the, of the outer robe, it reveals something the king had kept hidden. He'd been wearing sackcloth underneath his clothes. People notice. Now, why is that important? Well, you wore sackcloth Sackcloth is some type of animal skin, but with the normal part that you'd wear on the inside, on the outside, which means all the hair and the uncomfortable, you know, fur and stuff would be on the inside, which would be uncomfortable. And the reason you do that is to remind yourself how bad things are. I need to repent. I need to, I need to walk with the Lord. I, I'm crying out to God. Sackcloth was worn as a sign of mourning and repentance over sin, but you would never wear it hidden beneath your robe. So what's going on here? Well, perhaps Jehoram recognized that his sin, his own rebellion against God was at the root of their problem, but maybe he didn't want anyone else to know he thought that. Or perhaps he was just doing the expected religious thing, hoping it would be enough to appease God. I'm not entirely sure what Jehoram is doing, but his words betray that his heart really wasn't repentant, because he says, God do so and more also to me. God do so what? Well, let me be eaten by my mother. I'm not quite sure how someone could do more than that to him, but that's his anger and bitterness speaking. God do so and more to me. Let me be eaten by my mother. And even worse than that, if I don't take Elijah's head off today. He plans to kill Elisha. This is the prophet's fault. Now, why would he think that the siege and the famine and the cannibalism is Elisha's fault? Well, again, if this is still the same war, not one that occurs many years later, it makes sense because Elisha's the one who told Jehoram, feed the raiding party and send them back to their king. This is his fault. If I'd killed all those men, maybe the Syrians would have turned around. We wouldn't be in this mess. It's interesting because Jehoram is very selective with his memory. Elisha was the one who saved him and his army from at least three Syrian ambushes, according to verse 10. Remember last week? That's what happens when we grow bitter. Our bitterness taints how we see the world. So, 
he sends off a messenger to go kill Elisha, to execute him. I don't know why everyone keeps sending people to harm Elijah as if God doesn't know about their plans. Because, I mean, that's what we keep seeing. Oh, the prophet hears about all the plans we make? Go kidnap him. As if God's not going to tell him, hey, they're coming to kidnap you. Well, Jehoram sends the executioner, verse 32, Elijah knows. But Elisha sat in his house, and the elders sat with him. And the king sent a man from before him, but before the messenger came to him, he, Elijah, said to the elders, see you how this son of a murderer has sent to take away mine head? Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door and hold him fast at the door. Is not the sound of his master's feet behind him? Elisha knows what's what because he's been talking to the one who knows everything. And the Lord tells me, says, Elisha, king sent in a guy to come kill you, but he's going to change his mind a few minutes after he sends him. So tell these guys to lock him up, do whatever they got to do before the king gets here, and he can say, don't kill him yet. I want to yell at him first. So verse 32, it says that the elders are there sitting with Elijah, and they're the ones to take care of this. I think it's telling that the city leaders, that's who the elders are, that they're with Elijah instead of the king. They may not be believers. I don't know what their status is, but they know the king isn't going to be the one to lead them through this. And so they're hanging out with Elijah, making plans with him about what to do next. And in the midst of that, Elijah says, you see how this son of a murderer, God informs Elijah of the king's plans. And so he in turn warns the city leaders to detain the king's messenger because the king's going to change his mind right after he sends him in. Now, I do think it's interesting when he says son of a murderer, because you do have to ask the question, who's he talking about, mom or dad? Because Ahab and Jezebel are pretty wicked, right? I personally think it's mom. Because remember, it was Jezebel who had Naboth, the vineyard owner, murdered, not Ahab. She was the one who instigated the execution of God's prophets. This devaluation of life in Israel started with Jezebel. She's the one at the root of life in Israel becoming not precious. She's the one at the root of this horrible crime of cannibalism. And that's the danger of when we let idolatry kind of flourish in our lives, when other things become more important than God, because you and I, it's a biblical principle, we become what we worship. Now, the good news is if you worship Jesus, then who are you becoming more like? You become more like Jesus. If He's the most important thing, you're becoming day by day more like Him. But when you and I worship a God who isn't real, we become less than what God created us to be. There's a psalmist, I don't remember the psalm off the top of my head, but he says, talking about the idols, he goes, those who worship them are foolish because those idols, they have eyes but they can't see, ears but they can't hear, mouths but they can't speak, hands but they can't help, legs but they can't walk, they can't do anything for you. And then he says this, they that worship them become like unto them. In other words, you become less than who God created you to be when you're worshiping your job or when you're worshiping some other type of thing besides the Lord. You become like that, an insensate, dehumanized thing. And when you do that, you begin to view other people as less as well. You have eyes, but you can't see. You have ears, but you can't hear. They're not people anymore. They're just obstacles. Well, verse 33, while he yet talked with them, behold, the messenger came down unto them, and he said, and so it doesn't tell us the king comes after us, but these are the king's words. He said, behold, this evil is of the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? So the, the executioner comes in, they detain him. I don't know what they do to him, you know, if they, you know, stuff him in a sack or something. And then 
the king comes bumbling in a couple minutes later and he just gives it to Elisha. This evil's of the Lord. This disaster, this trouble, probably referring to the cannibalism. This is all God's fault. What should I wait for the Lord any longer? The word wait means to put hope in. He says, give me one reason why I should still place my hope in the Lord after what I've seen today. Give me one reason why I shouldn't kill you for convincing me to let my enemy go free. Give me one reason why I shouldn't just ignore you from here on out and move forward and do things my way. Maybe you've asked those questions in disaster in your own life at times. Well, there are a lot of reasons to place my hope in the Lord when disaster strikes my life. First off, He loves me. Second off, he has a plan for me. Thirdly, he will answer me when I call. Fourthly, he will draw near to me if I will draw near to him. For some reason, we tend to default to the conclusion that God has somehow been unfair with us. That, like, he's expecting us to do something before he'll do something. But the truth is, God already made so many moves to come closer to Jehoram. When we look at the whole story of this guy's life, time after time after time, God is coming close to him. And he's saying, you come close to me. I'm here. I'm right here. I want to know you. I want to help you. I want to be there for you. But every time Jehoram pursued his own direction, we often do the same. The trouble that we find ourselves in when we do that is never God's fault. And nor has God ever been unfair to us. The answer is always found in repentance. Turn back to God, Jehoram. He will forgive you and he will come close. But you've got to turn back. Jehoram does not turn back. But the Lord, in spite of that, has been caring for him and for his people. Despite the idolatry in the land and all their stubbornness, even this cannibalistic situation, God still cared for them and he was still working in them and he had already planned how to resolve the problem of Ben-Hadad. So look at Elijah's response in chapter 7, verse 1. And Elijah said, hear you the word of the Lord. It literally means you must listen to this. You need to hear this, Jehoram. And this was always Jehoram's problem. It was why God permitted the Syrian problem to continue. You don't listen. Every step of the way, God sent Elijah to give instructions to the king. Don't take the army here. There's an ambush waiting for you. Don't kill the raiding party. Feed them. Do what I say, Jehoram, not just in this instance, but in every instance. But Jehoram, for whatever reason, always perceived that trusting God was just like a religious activity for him. That that's what it means to trust God. Wear the right clothes, say the right things, be nice to God's prophet. But that's not trusting God. It's, that's not a relationship with God. And so because Jehoram still doesn't get it, Elijah keeps hammering the same lesson. These are God's words to you. This is not about religion. This is about relationship. God wants a relationship with you. He's speaking to you. You need to listen to what he's saying. So he says, you must listen to the word of the Lord, for thus says the Lord, tomorrow about this time shall a measure of fine flour be sold for a shekel and two measures of barley for a shekel in the gates of Samaria. This is about twice the normal cost of food. It's still very expensive, but hey, $3.15 for gas sounds great when it, it was $3.79 for months, right? 
I was joking. My kids will be like, Dad, gas is going down. I'm like, yeah, but it was 259 three years ago. He says, they're going to be selling in the gates. And if they're selling in the gates, it means the gates are open, which it means there's no more siege. God says, by this time tomorrow, the siege will be lifted. The army will be dealt with. The Lord wants you to know, Jehoram, everything's going to be way better tomorrow. That's just one reason. He asks, why? Give me one reason. Why should I still hope in the Lord? He goes, I'll tell you why. Because tomorrow, everything's going to be better. Everything's going to be better. You see, Jehoram's weird relationship with Elijah shows that he kind of wanted the Lord to be like a lucky charm for him. You're there when I need you, but only when I think you're needed. Otherwise, I got this. So Elisha reminds the king that the Lord's after more than that. Jehoram, I want you to trust me. I want you to follow me because I'm good. Here's my very gracious promise. Tomorrow, everything's going to be better. But the choice of whether you're going to trust me and follow me in it, that's up to you. Well, God's mercy and God's grace is too much to believe for one of the king's aides. Look at verse 2. Then a lord, it means a military leader, usually referring to a chariot commander. Then this chariot commander on whose hand the king leaned, he answered the man of God and said, Behold, if the Lord would make windows in heaven, might this thing be? And Elijah said to him, Behold, you shall see it with your eyes, but you won't eat of it. What's interesting about the fact that this guy's a chariot commander is that Israel wasn't supposed to have a cavalry. They weren't supposed to have a cavalry. God told him, he said, I don't want you having a cavalry because I don't want you trusting in your military expertise, your military superiority when you go into battle. I want you to trust me. So this guy's job, his whole job is to lead a group of soldiers who exist because they're disobeying to God. They exist because they believe they can guarantee victory better than trusting the Lord. It's even possible this guy came with the king because he was expecting orders to attack after Jehoram had Elijah killed. I've been telling you for weeks, let's just go out and attack him. Maybe as Elijah gave the promise, he saw the king wavering. Maybe he just thought Elijah's words were absurd. Whatever his reason is, he will soon regret his outburst. The way the King James writes it here, it almost sounds like, like he's like, could that really happen? But it's not. The word if here, there's no if. His words are more derisive than that. It's if you could translate it correctly, closest, it would say, is God going to open up the windows in the sky and raid food down on us to bring all this about? Is that what's going to happen? That's ridiculous. His words are mocking as if Elijah's words are as ridiculous as expecting food to fall from the sky. His mocking shows he didn't really listen to Elijah's words because Elijah told him the gates are going to be open again. I'm not telling you God's going to drop food from the sky. I'm telling you that business will be in session tomorrow. There won't be a siege anymore. Now, the truth is, God could rain food from the sky. He did it in the desert, right? He did it with the manna. But faith is not about putting your brain in check and expecting impossible things to happen. Faith is about submitting your brain to God's promises. People say, I don't want to be a Christian. I want to check, check my brain at the door. So you don't need to check your brain at the door. You just need to submit it to God. See, when we lean on our own understanding, we're not submitting it to God. Nothing wrong with using your brain, but it needs to be submitted to the promises and the truths of God's Word. 
Because sometimes the Lord's going to say things that go 100% counter to your brain. And because he mocked the Lord's promise, Elijah gives him another promise, albeit not a happy one. He says, well, because you said this, you're going to see it happen, but you're not going to eat any of it. We'll see how that works out by the end of the chapter. Well, while all this is going on, night falls, and God begins to fulfill his promise. Look at verse 3. And there were four leprous men at the entering into the gate, and they said one to another, why do we sit here until we die? Verse 4, if we say we will enter into the city, well, then the famine's in the city, and we die there. And if we sit here, we'll die also. Therefore, now come, and let us fall under the host of the Syrians. If they save us alive, we shall live, and if they kill us, we shall but die. Kind of like these guys, they kind of decide to YOLO it, you know. Can't go inside, there's no food in there. And the reason they're outside, you're like, it's kind of a comical situation. You know, you got this big camp, this big army surrounding the city. Everybody's inside eating things they shouldn't be eating. And these four dudes are just sitting here. Why are they out there? Well, lepers, they're not allowed to live with the community of Israelis. They were unclean. Probably had a colony somewhere near the city. And when the Syrians showed up, they probably kept their distance at first, but eventually they ran out of food. And so they approached the gates, probably looking for food, only to find the situation is not any better inside. He said, come, let's just go and fall means to, let's just fall down, like beg them to spare us. And if they let us live, they let us live. If they kill us, well, we're going to die anyway. Won't change the outcome. Desperate plan. But one they were willing to try given there was no hope at all staying where they were. What they find is not at all what they expected. Look at verse 5. And they rose up in the twilight as the sun's going down. They got up and they said, we're going to go under the camp of the Syrians. And when they were come to the uttermost part of the camp of Syria, the uttermost part would be the edge, the farthest part away from the city. In other words, they, they decide to go all the way around, like nobody's going to see these four guys walking around. But they go around in hopes that they'll think, the army will think, well, we're just travelers. We're looking for food. And maybe they won't kill them. They won't think they're associated with the city. And they come. And when they were come to the uttermost part of the camp of Syria, behold, there's no man there, no guards, no watch, nothing. For the Lord had made the host of the Syrians to hear a noise of chariots and a noise of horses, even the noise of a great host. And so they said to one another, Lo, this is what the Syrians said to one another when they heard the noise, Lo, the king of Israel is hired against us, the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to come upon us. Wherefore, they arose and fled in the twilight, and they left their tents and their horses and their asses, even the camp as it was, and fled for their life. So all their, their animals, all their stuff, everything, they just left it behind and they just flee. Now, that's one of those things you just look at and you go, that is crazy. Like you read about this sometimes in the Bible, you read about a situation where it says, and God caused them to see something and the army started fighting each other instead of fighting the Israelites. You're like, who does that? There was a, a story, a situation where we had mold in our house and our insurance policy said very clearly this is what our deductible was and it was a very high deductible for mold and we didn't have anything close to that amount of money and I was so I was just like this we had the guy who came in and said this is the worst mold I've ever seen I'm like great I'm like my whole family's gonna die and if you know me that's how I am I'm pretty there's no tepid with me it's hot or cold okay and I'm just totally losing it I'm all worried I'm angry I'm like God what are you doing and we don't have the money for this whatever and uh, 
But we start praying and we start asking the Lord. And so I call a couple days later and say, hey, I've got the, the bill. So how much, you know, how much do we need to pay up front? And then what do you guys pay? And I'm telling you this, God made my insurance policy change in front of her computer. Literally, because she goes, well, I know what we said last time, but I'm looking at your policy now and we cover it all. You have no deductible. And I'm like, no deductible? She's like, yes. I'm like, I'm reading my policy right here. She goes, well, you might want to stick with my policy that I've got in front of me. And I was like, where do I sign up? (laughs) So it's not so crazy. It's not so crazy. Maybe, Maybe you haven't had that experience, but you're not the only one in the world. I have people come to me and say, how come we never see God heal anybody? I'm like, well, just because you haven't seen him do it doesn't mean he hasn't done it. Because I've had lots of conversations with people who tell me some of the craziest stories. I've had that experience in my own life. So, yes, we look at this, and and like I, I read it, and I think, how did you do this, God? I don't know how the people in Samaria didn't hear the noise, or they didn't see all the Syrians running off like crazy people. What are they running for? I don't know. Maybe they found roaches. I don't know. I can't answer all those questions. Why did they react so suddenly? Why did they assume it was the Egyptians and the Hittites? And like, like it's funny how our brains work sometimes, though, isn't it? We get all terrified, and we think, well, this is going on, and this is going on, and they've been plotting against me for their whole lives. So I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe this was a normal thing that they were worried about, and, and then the, the right situation just triggered it all. And before you knew it, paranoia spread, and they just said, Adam, we're getting out of here. All I know is this. David Guzik said this. Israel was powerless against this besieging army, but God was not powerless. God solved the problem in a, a moment, and it was just gone. And this is the truth of all our disasters. Truth be told, it's why we get bitter at God like Jehoram did. You and I know well, God, you can say the word and it'll just be gone. So why haven't you said the word? Will you ever say the word? What if I do if you don't say the word? In Israel's situation, we know why God waited because we have this whole story in front of us. And sometimes in our life, we can look back and understand why God waited or why he didn't step in. But there will be things that you encounter where you don't fully understand the side of heaven. Because to be honest, it's not just about you. It's not just about you. And so instead of responding to that truth by saying, well then, how can I know God loves me? How can I trust him enough to love him back if I don't understand what he's doing? To that I would say, you need to respond to the truth of that God might allow you to go through something and it might not even be about you by saying, well, I know God loves me, so I will trust that he's working all these things for the good of all those who love God, just like he promised he would in his word. If you're in a situation right now that looks impossible, well, then you need to remember that God's not powerless because of your impossibility. He's not powerless because you see no way out Cry out to him. He's a good king. And he will only say wait or say no if that's the best thing 
for everyone. Well, when the lepers realize nobody's there, they decide to feast like kings. Verse 8, and when these lepers came to the uttermost part of the camp, they went into one tent and they did eat and drink, and they carried out of there silver and gold and raiment, and they went and hid it. And then they came back again for more. They entered another tent, and they carried from there also, and they went and hid it. But after the second trip, it says in verse 9, then they said one to another, we do not well. This isn't right. The word well actually means uh, being honest. We're not being honest here. Why? This day is a day of good tidings, and we hold our peace. If we tarry till the morning light, some mischief will come upon us. Now, therefore, come that we may go and tell the king's household. These guys are funny guys. They're there hiding stuff. They're stocking up, you know, making sure they get plenty of things. We're going to be taken care of for life. One more trip, one more trip. And then the third trip, one of them, you know, said to each other, said, this is, this is, this is not right. There's people in there starving, and there's food right here. We need to go tell them. There's good news. People are just as hopeless as we've been. They need to see this. <laughs> and they said, because if the reasoning, it's not good. If we tear it till the morning, some mischief, the word mischief means punishment. In other words, if we wait till the morning and tell everybody, God's going to get us. Not the best reason to do the right thing. Fear of God punishing us doesn't actually change us. We learned about that this morning. There's no fear in our loving union with God. But I will always say this, it's better to do the right thing than to keep doing the wrong thing. And so in verse 10, they come. They came and they called the porter, those are the gatekeepers of the city. And they told him, saying, we came to the camp of the Syrians, and check this out, there was no man there, neither voice of man, nor there were horses tied, donkeys tied, and the tents as they were. So this gatekeeper hears this, and he's like, What? So he gets all the other porters, all the other gatekeepers on duty, huddles with the rest of them, and they decide to take it to the king. So they told it to the king's house within. Verse 12, and the king arose in the night, and he said unto his servants, I will now show you what the Syrians have done to us. They know that we're hungry. Therefore, they gone out of the camp to hide themselves in the field, saying, when they come out of the city, we'll catch them alive, and then we'll get into the city. Smart guy. They decide to notify the king, but instead of being elated that God kept the promise that Elijah shared with them, he didn't listen because the king tells all his officers it's a trap. I will now show you. <laughs> How often have we said those words? I think I shared this story two weeks ago, but we had a, a car situation out of Bible college, and we ended up going into debt to get it fixed, and I told Bev. She's like, sweetie, I don't, I don't think this is a good idea. And I said, well, what's God going to do when we get home after we graduate? Give us a car? And at our reception of our wedding, someone gave us a car. It's one of those things that when you see someone, you go, I'm never going to say that again. I will now show you. How often have we said words like that? I know what's really going on. How many times have we critiqued the Lord or refused to be encouraged because we presume to know what's really going on? Jehoram may not be as wicked as his parents Ahab and Jezebel, but he is just as proud. And this is why God called him an evil king. He's the epitome of a life that leans on its own understanding. Over and over and over, Jehoram keeps claiming, I know what's really going on. And every time he's wrong, and yet he refuses to change. What happens when we live like this? 
We just refuse to trust the Lord. Well, it means that the freedom and blessings God offers us right outside our door often doesn't become our experience. So please don't be like Jehoram. Please don't stubbornly insist that I know. When I was a kid, my grandma would always say, William knows everything. Because that's what I'd say every time she tried to explain something. I know, Grandma. I know. I know. A foolish, proud, and childish mindset is common in one so young. But at some point, we need to grow up and get real. That we know very little. And we control even less than we know. Well, thankfully, the king has at least one advisor who's wise enough to say, maybe we don't know what's going on. And so in verse 13, he, one of his servants answered and said to him, Let some take, I pray you, five of the horses that remain, which are left in the city. Behold, there is all the multitude of Israel that are left in it. Behold, I say, there even is all the multitude uh, of the Israelites that are consumed. Let us send them and find out. In other words, he's saying if they die in the scouting foray, that, that's just what's going to happen to them if we don't send anybody out to check on it. So let's just send five horses, five scouts out there to find out what's going on. We're not really losing anything if they're killed. If it's a trap and they spring it, we'll know they're dead. They'd be dead in here in a couple days anyway. Which, him having to make this argument sounds to me like Jehoram didn't want to waste the men and the horses. Sounds like his, his officer has to kind of argue with him to persuade him to do it. We work so hard to maintain control, don't we? But why do we do it? Let me ask you a question. I, I ask this to people sometimes when they are just raging against the Bible or God or Christianity, and I say, okay, so let's look at how our society has raged against God and His principles for the last 20 years. Have things gotten better? The answer is a big fat no. Things have not gotten better. Our culture is more divisive, more hateful, more violent, more wicked, more selfish. Things are not going in the right direction. They're getting worse. We have not made our lives better by refusing to trust the Lord. Well, the king refuses to send five, and in the end, he only allows them to take two horses out. Look at verse 14. They took, therefore, two chariot horses, and the king sent after the host of the Syrians, saying, Go and see. These are two different events that are being described here. The writer's not giving us all the details, but first he says, They took, therefore, two chariot horses. So two scouts go out to check out the camp. They confirm the leper's report, but Jehoram's still not convinced. He authorizes them to go track the army down. He says, Go and see. He doesn't say, Let's go out and eat. He says, No. Go track them down. I'm not, we're not going out there until we find this army. So verse 15, they went after them unto Jordan, all the way to the Jordan River. And lo, the entire way to the Jordan River it was full of garments and vessels which the Syrians had cast away in their haste. And so the messengers returned, and they told the king. Now, the Jordan River is about 70 miles from Samaria. 70 miles That's at least a two-and-a-half-hour drive, not a horse, but a drive. I don't know how many hours it would take by horse. But that's at least, at the very least, five extra hours that the people were starving when God had provided everything right there. Verse 16, the people went out. Finally, the king says, okay, I guess they're gone. 
The people went out and they spoiled the tents of the Syrians. And so a measure of fine flour was sold for a shekel and, and two measures of barley for a shekel according to the word of the Lord, just like Elijah predicted. What a glorious day this must have been. Everyone went to bed thinking life was over, but it was 100% reversed the next day. Why? Because God keeps his word. Now, again, that's not to say everyone experienced God's promises when he fulfilled them in the morning. All morning, people's stomachs ached for no reason because the king refused to believe God's words. And there's an application for us in that. Do you often delay or miss out on God's blessings because you just won't trust what he says? Let's be those who trust what God says. Well, there's another promise still. So verse 17, we've got to see this one fulfilled. And the king appointed the Lord on whose hand he leaned, this chariot commander, to have charge of the gate. He was to oversee this mass of people who are looking to get out. So when he decides to let the people go, he says, Mr. Chariot Man, you're in charge. And so it says the people trampled him in the gate, and he died, as the man of God had said, who spoke when the king came down to him. And it came to pass, as the man of God had spoken to the king, saying, Two measures of barley for a shekel, and a measure of fine flour for a shekel shall be tomorrow about this time in the gate of Samaria. And when the Lord answered the man of God and said, Now behold, if the Lord should make windows in heaven, might such a thing be? And he said, Behold, you shall see it with your eyes, but you won't eat of it. And so it fell out unto him, for the people trampled upon him in the gate, and he died. What a joyful ending to the chapter. Here's the lesson. God does what he says, even when what he says is a promise of judgment. God does what he says. Now that's cool because we read the promises of God and we put them on our fridges and around the house. The Lord bless thee and keep thee, make his face shine upon me, amen. But there's other promises, like Jesus when he said, I don't remember who he said it to, but he said, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. That's a promise. It's not one we usually put on the fridge. But like, hey, I've got a promise to share with you, coworker. This one, unless you repent, you'll perish. But it is a promise, and God does keep his word. Some people say, well, hell is just inconceivable. I, I can't believe eternal punishment exists. God's discipline is real. His judgment's real. You can't approach it leaning on your own understanding. I'm sure when this guy said, when Elijah told him, he said, you know what? You're going to see it, but you won't eat a lick of it. I'm sure he probably thought, whatever, man. Whatever. Not, not, what you say is going to happen, let alone me dying tomorrow. No. He died. So God means what he says whether it's in the blessings he wants to give us or the judgment that we'll experience. Because he does know all things. And he is qualified to understand how things work. And so when we consider how much he loves us and how much he knows, he's worthy to be trusted. Amen? Let's all stand. Lord, how many times we see the psalmists say we give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His mercy, his loving kindness endures forever. Lord, you are good. Lord, you're almighty, you're all powerful. You, we can't thwart you. 
Why did the heathen rage? Why do they imagine this vain idea that they can rebel against God? Psalm 2 says, Lord, but the truth is we don't have to rage. We, you're worthy to be trusted. You know everything and you love us. So Lord, remind us of that truth when we're confronted with disaster, when we're confronted with a, what looks like a, a pit that there's no way we can get out of. And we would be those who cry out to you and trust that if you say no or you say wait, it's because there's a good reason. That there's, it, that's what's best for everyone, even if right now it doesn't feel like that's what's best for me. Remind us of that, Lord, that we would lean into your love and not be like Jehoram. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.